welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana, and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Okay, so we're in the book of Acts. We're tackling another giant chunk just to be, uh, just to remind us while I am looking at a lot of the verses, uh, we are predominantly going through more thematically what Luke, what the point of Acts is for us. So this last portion where we're at in Acts, we're in Acts 4. And this last portion here is the last section before Luke turns us outwards. Uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem. So right now, up until now, the church post-resurrection has stayed where Jesus uh, had them in the beginning. They have so far taken the Gospel to Jerusalem. They've obeyed that first part of Acts 1.8. But, so, but prior to that, uh, aside from that, the Gospel has not extended further than that. And as you can see, our series to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8, they are to take it further beyond Jerusalem, outside their comfortable hometown. It is to go to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to see this last section here as they are gearing up, uh, that Luke is showing us that they are being geared up to take the gospel uh, further. And that'll be next week when we look at Acts 6. Uh, But in our overview of this passage, we're going to see three things. The church is faced with the option to obey or oppose. That's what I want us to see this morning. Uh, And there's in three contexts that we're going to see. We're going to see in community, in culture, and in caring for the overlooked and misunderstood. And so, let's begin with community. We're starting in chapter 4, verse 32. The scriptures should be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. So starting in verse 32, just going to walk through this. This is the option of to obey or oppose in their community, the community of believers specifically. Now this section in verse 32 begins with a sort of prologue. Luke does this a lot, a lot of transition uh, paragraphs and sentences. And in it we catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God taking shape amongst us. Let's read. Verse 32, Luke writes, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. But everything they owed owned was held in common. Um, Those everythings and alls and things like that in Luke and Acts typically are hyperbole. It's a generalization. We know later on that people do own stuff and they do have their own things that are limited to them, but they see it as while this is under my name, under my ownership, I know that I hold it with open hands because God held his life before us with open hands. And so they're willing to set it aside if God Uh, leads them to. But verse 33, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Again, this is hyperbole because we know people in this church in particular still own property A few chapters from now, they meet in some homes that someone owns, so they weren't all just voluntarily homeless, but this is a generalization. There's this 
character going on, this energy to give up a lot of their luxuries, their extra cars, their extra houses, their extra properties, and so forth. And sometimes, maybe even not just their extras. Verse 35, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as need. So Luke paints this picture. There's this harmony. You get this portrait of unity, of peace, of shalom. In light of the sacrifice of Jesus, we see the church willing to sacrifice for one another. And again, the reality of the resurrection is what's being proclaimed. This continues to come up in Luke's Gospel that without the resurrection, this is pointless, but it is the resurrection that we are uh, living in light of. Now, no one had need among them, yes, but notice that Luke says need, not want. And we can sometimes say, oh, I need that. Oh, I need this. I think we, we throw that word around a lot, right? That what our needs are. Our needs versus wants are very different. Um, yeah, my AirPods, for example, are breaking. And I told Aaron, I need to get new AirPods. Um, that's not true. I don't need new AirPods. I don't need AirPods. I don't need headphones. I don't need to listen to podcasts or music. It's not a need. It's a luxury. But even that, that little language for me is... That's not true. I don't need that. We only need but a few things. So, this isn't that everyone in the church is like living, living luxuriously. Uh, they are, their needs are met. And then in verse 30, 35, this phrase keeps coming up. Keep an eye out for this. The apostles' feet keep coming up. It's kind of a random phrase that comes up quite a bit in this chunk. But this placing of the proceeds at their feet was a way of entrusting their, their power to those who God had placed in leadership over them. Not that they themselves were God, but it was as if God had appointed them to steward to together collectively as this apostleship team, and later on we'll see some deacons, to entrusting them to steward these resources. Jump down to 36 now. Now we introduce this big chunk, verse 36 through 511. Now the funny thing is that 5, 1 through 11 is a passage I preached on about a year ago when I candidated here. It was a, I don't know if any of you recall it, but it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in this story, we meet a couple that uh, they, we first meet the husband and he comes in, he, lays, he says he, lay, he sold his property and he lays all the proceeds at the apostles' feet and says, here it is, go do with it what you want, essentially. Um, now they know, somehow Peter knows, it seems like through the Holy Spirit, that they did not give all the proceeds, but they tried to make it seem as though they did. They were trying to build a name for themselves. Now the passage I did not teach on is just prior to this. In verse 36, 36 and 37, we meet Barnabas. Barnabas is a key person that comes up later on in Acts. And, well, he, he has a few other names, but he is given a name rather than making a name for himself. Again, this theme comes up often in Acts. He's given the name by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This man sold a field, it seems like an extra property, that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is contrasted with the beginning of 5, where you meet Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, uh, these people are both struck dead by God. 
or lying to the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an intense passage. A lot of people are like, what's up with this? Who is this God? (laughs) You say your God's loving and he just strikes these people down. It's a pretty obscure passage. But this is the stark contrast between someone who is uh, obeying God in submitting their lives, everything, willing to hold everything open-handedly before God, and someone who is opposing that call to take up their cross, to deny themselves and follow Him. That they're only giving up a little. Um, And it's not that they're only giving up a little, that that's the problem, because Peter even says, it was your property. You didn't have to give it. You didn't even have to give it all. But you are misleading people to and boasting and trying to build your reputation, your name, your righteousness in the midst of the church and the community. You want people to see your good deeds rather than how Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand did. Not even yourselves, essentially, saying don't get too caught up in your good deeds, let alone boasting about it amongst people. And that's what these people are doing. They are, in in so doing, they're deceiving Uh, people, they are in opposition to God. So they both drop dead. Uh, One commentator writes of this, they wish to enjoy the renown of perfect generosity while retaining something for a rainy day. Now there's nothing wrong with a rainy day fund or saving or retirement or anything like that. Uh, But again, it's the intention behind it. They were intentionally deceptive of their deeds, and they seem to be trying to make a name for themselves rather than find their name in who they are in Jesus, like Barnabas had. Now, at the end of this section, verse 11, it's interesting. This is the first time Luke refers to the body of believers as the church. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these things. This is the word ekklesia, if you've heard of that in Greek. But then the last section of this first point is verses 12 through 16. It's, Luke is essentially alluding to a, a scenario that Jesus, we saw of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Now, let me just read it briefly for us. Many signs and wonders were done among them through the apostles. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Notice this fear amongst the church. There's another, another layer of fear that has seized them, that has, excuse me, gripped them, the community at large. And they revere them, but they're kind of a little distant. Verse 14, yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. What does that sound like? If you recall, there's a story in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 6, where the crowds, they they hear of Jesus coming, and it says in Mark 6, 55 and 56, it says they rushed about the whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard Jesus was. And whenever he went into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, why, why Peter's shadow? Uh, in the ancient world, for some reason, they believed the shadow was a part of your body. 
that was a part of your being. And so to touch someone's shadow was still touching their essence. And so that's what that language means there. They, they thought that even just the, the furthest extension of that person's being in that presence, in that touch, they could be healed. Now these individual uh, miracles, as one commentator wrote, can be viewed as signs of God's inbreaking rule of love and related to the individual faith and response. Signs of the inbreaking rule of love. These are signposts for us. These are, these are evidences of the kingdom coming. These are markers for us of the kingdom. Now, a couple things to notice about this first point, that the option to obey or oppose God in the midst of community. While Ananias and Sapphira were striving to make a name for themselves, as I noted, similar to how we saw in Acts 2 a few weeks ago when we talked about the Babel story and and in Acts 2, if you recall this, notice it's key, I think, that Barnabas is given a name, but Ananias and Sapphira are seeking to build their own name. In Barnabas being selfless, he's finding himself having been given a new name in Jesus. Now, Peter here, another thing to notice, he obeys by confronting sin. Something that is pretty uncomfortable for us, right? Beginning of Acts 5, this is kind of a big deal. Imagine if we did this in a church gathering where I was like, hey, so-and-so, I, I heard you did this. Whoa, it's kind of radical, judgmental, critical, and so forth. But Peter, it seems like prompted by the Spirit, obeys in confronting the sin of someone in the church. Notice another thing, that at the beginning of God's recreation story, there again is a husband and a wife who are deceived and opposed God. So just as in the beginning story, a husband and a wife operate in their own to... to fulfill their own desires, and they end up in opposition to God, so too in this new creation story. If Acts is the new creation, the the birthing of the church, we again have a pivotal couple that serves as an example for us of what it looks like and the consequences, potential consequences of opposition to God. And lastly, notice in this section, money's power. Particularly the love of money's power is what the Scriptures will go on to say later. But Jesus said in Luke 18.24, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul later would write to Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now I think this wealth could be monetarily, yes, but it could also be uh, wealthy, uh, wealth and righteousness, wealth and accolades, wealth and power and prestige, whatever that is that we're striving to build uh, and acquire more of in life that is not for in service of God and His kingdom, we can be striving for this wealth. I think that's fair to say. So the question before us is, does, does the love of money grip us? Has the love of power taken you captive? See Jesus, who though He had and was entitled to all power, gave it up for the sake of others, including you and me. You are now free to be freed 
from the love of money and power. That's what Barnabas, among others in the early church, had experienced. Let's go on to the next section. The next point where they're, they're uh, offered the opportunity to either oppose or obey God is in the midst of their culture. And this chunk is verses 17 through 42. Just going to, again, overview it. But in this section, this is another section where uh, the apostles are arrested for proclaiming the Gospels, uh, for proclaiming the Gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. And now, well, in particular, they did not listen to the counsel from chapter 4 that told them, hey, stop talking about the Gospel. And so in verse 17... It says the high priest takes action after hearing all this, these signs and wonders happening. People starting to be attracted to this movement. So them, along with a sect called the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. If you recall, the Sadducees, anti-resurrection, do not believe that anything is after this world. There will be no resurrection from the dead. This is one of four main Jewish sects. S-E-C-T. I want to be careful to enunciate that. Uh, it's similar to like a denomination. So you got the Sadducees, the Pharisees, we know of these, and then you have the Essenes and the Zealots. I'm, I always forget the last one. Um, and the Essenes are the one we don't hear of often because they're in the hills. They, they totally resist and re- remove themselves from any sort of culture. That's where they are. The Sadducees got very political. Zealots got very political. They were the anarchists, if you will. And so the Sadducees are involved with the high priest here. And in verse 19, it says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prison doors. He brings them out. Go stand in the temple and tell people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. And when the high priest and all those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they didn't find them in prison. So they returned and reported what happened. We found the prison was securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, look, the the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Again, fear continues to move and grip these people. But notice, as one commentator wrote, they have been liberated, they've been freed from their imprisonment, not so they may gain security or safety, but for the furtherance of their mission. We know it's not for safety because literally, in a few moments, we're going to see them get beat up like crazy. No, they have been liberated not for this physical, earthly safety necessarily. That's not the main intention of God. No, it's the furtherance of their mission and finding their place in Him. Continue down. You look at verse 27. When they had brought them, They had them stand before the council. The high priest questions them. He's saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching 
and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. This phrase might be unfamiliar with us. We're like, he was hung on a tree. Uh, it's okay. It's just a cultural phrase. That, and some of our Old Testament prophecies more said that Jesus would be hung on a tree rather than crucified on a cross. It's a synonymous term uh, because a cross is made out of a tree. Uh, but anyways, we keep moving. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, there's resurrection proclamation here. This is what is so controversial. That our God defeated death. That new life is here. And in verse 32, there's a reiteration of our Acts 1-8 passage. Peter says, we are witnesses. That's Acts 1-8. You will be witnesses when you receive the Spirit. And that's why Peter says, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom, has given to the, uh, whom God has given to those who obey Him. This is a reiteration of the thesis, of the goal of the book of Acts, the whole story. Luke continues to take us back there. And then you, he concludes this section in, verse 30, in this next chunk. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is a similar response, right, that they had to Jesus at some of his teachings, right? When he claimed to be God, they wanted to kill him. They picked up stones. Verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Interesting thing to notice here, Pharisees, super prevalent in the Gospels. This is the first time they're mentioned. They're only mentioned a handful of times in the book of Acts. It's kind of odd. And this is the only one mentioned by name. Kind of a fun little fact. Not sure if that totally matters. Maybe I should have spent more time on the significance of that. But... Let's keep going. Verse 35, then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. Oh, quick side note, 34 to 40, 35 to 40 here. Notice, none of the churches in the room here. How does Luke know this happened or what was said? There's a lot of speculation here as to how this happened, but there is not a single person of the apostles or the church mentioned to be in this room. It is the Jewish high council. One option that I tend to like is that at the end of this section in, in chapter 6 verse 7 Luke summarizes that many of the priests became obedient to faith and I'm thinking perhaps they were the ones who communicated what happened to Luke later on um, other commentators state that Luke is speculatively summarizing what happened but um, and, and this does make sense because Gamaliel is going to mention two guys here two Messiah figures in the ancient Near East one of them is way after this took place. And so it seems like it is out of order, and so he's potentially more writing and putting these figures for Luke's audience, not the actual people in this, who are in this scene. But anyways, we keep going. Verse 36. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. 
but he was killed, and all who followed him were dis- dispersed and disappeared. Uh, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting or in opposition towards God. They were convinced by him. And we'll stop there for a second. A couple things to note here. He says they were dispersed and disappeared. I think Luke is foreshadowing what's about to happen in next week's passage. And not to give too much away, but Acts 1-8 will uh, start being more fulfilled coming next week at once the persecution of Stephen happens. But, do you see Gamaliel's warning? Don't oppose God. Why? Because it's literally impossible. No one can thwart God's plans. And this, this argument in itself is a significant apologetic or defense for our faith. This is something that historians and even sociologists uh, utilize as saying we don't have a good answer other than this must be authentic. There's a book called The Rise of Christianity by a gentleman named Rodney Stark that tracks the development, the vast and quick, the rapid expansion of the early church in an era that these were lower class people, they were not in power, there was not any technological development, and their leader was killed, and yet this movement blew up from the middle of nowhere. One of the only explanations is the resurrection must be true. And some might say, well, that's one explanation. I, I just don't know another reason. But still, that is one argument, one defense for the reality of the resurrection. Okay, jump back down, finish up this little section. Verse 40, when they had called the apostles, they had them flogged, they beat them. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now, as they left the council, check this out, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. What? That's crazy. I don't know that I uh, would respond that way. I think that's the Spirit of God in them. Verse 42, he concludes, And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. They do not obey the counsel. They obey God. So notice a few things here in this section on the choice before them whether to obey or oppose in their cultural context. Although Peter denied Jesus three times on the other side of the resurrection, on this side, when Peter now has God's Spirit dwelling in him, he does not deny or oppose God. Notice then that this could not end well for them, possibly. People wanted to kill them. They wanted blood. They wanted to shut this down. 
From a human perspective, this very much could not end well. Their lives could be taken, and yet they still obey. They are faithful. When the council calls them to oppose God, they oppose the council. And lastly, in this section, notice where they draw the line. Because throughout Acts, you're going to see sections and instances where they do, maybe the word isn't obey the culture, but they comply or do not let something in the culture force them to withdraw. So notice where they're drawing the line. In particular, it's the proclamation of the name of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. That's the main thing. That's the line they draw. The line is drawn not in culture wars, but when culture calls them to deny the resurrection and to stop proclaiming its reality. So very little does the early church actually, that we see in church history, and in particular in the book of Acts, actively oppose or resist their culture. It really comes down to in instances of worship and of shutting their mouth or not. But aside from that, they're not really out for the culture wars because the kingdom war has been won. The resurrection has disarmed the powers that come in these momentary culture wars. Is that relevant for us today? As we walk through Acts, we see the apostles and the early church go to cultural centers, they go into cities, and they engage, they invest, they learn from, and even partner with, and yet still proclaim the resurrection, the reality of the kingdom of God in their midst. This is them obeying that Jeremiah 29, that to go into the community, go to seek the welfare of the city, to not disengage, but to invest in your community. These cultural centers, and they rarely do this. Everywhere, when we look, get to the Paul section from 13 on, they are heavily invested. Paul is very familiar with the culture of his day and the context of everywhere he goes. So the warning, I think, for us is this. Be careful where we resist. Be careful where we resist. It's good to question and pause and be slow to act and slow to speak, but I think we ought to listen, wait, pray, think, weigh it amongst ourselves as to how we resist as the people of God in the midst of an unbelieving world. How we oppose culture, leaders, politics, companies, communities, anything of that sort. It says a lot, and it could, our opposition could be what breaks down the bridge for us to go over and bring the kingdom into these people's lives. So today, much of the church in America prioritizes opposing policies, procedures, and even political correctness that could be contrary to the character and kingdom of God, but in seeking to win in politics, we've decided to lose in people. Hence why the American church continues to diminish. Some speculate that it's because 
the culture is taking over. Uh, but I suspect Jesus in the Gospels warned us and told, taught us to look inward before we point the finger outward. To seek for the logs in our own eyes of the church. What's going on? What are we doing that is diminishing our witness rather than pointing outwards at the specks in culture? And though they may be logs or sticks or whatever it may be, we need to deal with our own stuff. So what if, instead of refusing to acknowledge people by their preferred, for example, pronouns and names, we decide to get to know said people? What if instead of seeing these people as faces for policies we may disagree with, we saw them as people trying to figure out what it means to be human and how to live as a fellow broken person in a broken world? What if we ask the Spirit to help us see people over politics or policy? Why? Because they're image bearers. But even more so, this is literally what Jesus did with us, right? Jesus didn't. Jesus was able to identify with us. Jesus became like us. Jesus sought to have compassion with us. We see that over and over in the Gospels. Jesus telling us and showing us what it looks like to have empathy to connect with, to build a bridge, to enter into someone's world and help them see the reality of life in Him. The question for us is, are we going to walk across the bridge or are we going to break it down? Are we going to let politics break down the bridge or are we going to walk across the bridge and go to the people? Acts 1-8 tells us to go where they are. It doesn't tell us to tell them, come where we are. It tells us to go. That's our thesis. That's Luke's point. Go. That is the Great Commission. And our last section here, they are faced with the option to obey or oppose in the caring of the overlooked and misunderstood, the least, the last, the lost. And this is our last section, these seven verses here in chapter 6. In this section, we're introduced to what many traditions refer to as deacons, or I think Presbyterians refer to them as the diaconate, which is the plurality of deacons. Um, yeah, I, I would personally believe these are the, uh, the initiation of deacons, which you can read about the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy, but other than that, you don't really hear about them too much. Why? Because their role is mainly a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. A lot of stuff that, for some reason, doesn't get a lot of praise, but you're like, oh my gosh, they do tremendous, valuable, church, community-loving, and building work. We have these people in our community, right? And I think we do well in celebrating them. Um, but we can always do more, right? Because they do so much that we don't even realize. And I think it's telling that in most of scriptures, in most of the New Testament, we only hear of these people but a few times. What a humble position these people choose to serve in. So in verse 1, we see it says, Luke says, now during those days, when they're going on picking up, you know, they're proclaiming and teaching Jesus as the Messiah, the resurrected King. During those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained, complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, Hellenists, term we don't utilize anymore. 
they are simply Greek-speaking Jewish people. And there's this disunity or opposition within the church going on, right? So we started off with this harmony, this peace, right at the end of chapter 4. And we're seeing here there's inward fighting in particular when caring for the overlooked, the misunderstood. And in particular, it's an ethnic or racial minority. It's the Greek-speaking Jewish people. I'd probably say an ethnic minority. Now, what was going on here? Luke's describing discrimination that is occurring in the local church here. Keep going. In verse 2, it says, And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. How does that sound? I always read that passage and I'm like, whoa, that would be really weird. And I, imagine if I said that to you. Like, no, 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 I'm not going to. I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm just going to be over here. It just sounds really, really rough. Um, perhaps it's because it's condensed words, and hopefully they clarified and, and were very humble in this, but man, it sounds pretty like harsh and prideful and just elevating themselves above this task. But perhaps it's also an indicator that the church was this big and there were only 12 of them. The church at this point is thousands of people and there are only 12 apostles, and we're referring to the apostles here. Verse 3, Therefore, friends, select from among you, from among yourselves, seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. So I think first, as I kind of noted on, I think this also adds, or maybe this is a second, I think this is a way of showing how important the preaching and teaching of God's Word is in the eyes of the apostles. That is something to consider as well. But I do think the size plays a bit in this, that this is a giant church at this point, and there's not that many apostles. This is just getting started. And then, I don't think they refuse to help people. Because we literally just saw Peter healing people in the streets, right? So it's not like they didn't do anything. It's like, hey, this can't be our focus. And this is the hyperbolic, over-exaggeration language of Luke. That it's all this, or no one did this, or everyone this. It's sweeping. It's almost like your teenager telling you a story, right? Or you're the worst parent ever, or... <laughs> Sorry, maybe that's too much experience for me. Um, <laughs> No? Okay. Um, I still talk like this. As a Southern Californian uh, native and someone who exaggerates way too much, um, this is part of my language. And so it makes sense to me that I'm like, okay, well, this probably isn't really, they weren't doing anything. It is hyperbolic. But still, I think it shows us that their priority is to study, preach, and teach the scriptures, and pray, and equip leaders. So we see this later on in Ephesians 4. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he says that the gifts God gave, that the Spirit gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors. I think that word should really be shepherds. And teachers. Why? Verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and all of the knowledge of the Son of God. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, sorry. To maturity, 
to the measure of the full stature of Christ. It goes on that we must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, by fake news is essentially what he's saying, or poor doctrine. Uh, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. But Paul's point is, their role, these five roles that they gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, their role is to equip the believers to continue to go out and do the work of ministry. Do it in their midst, but then in their communities. This totally, and I think we see this in Peter, right? That Luke is literally showing how Peter is doing what Jesus did, right? He's, he has parallel stories going on where he's healing people in the streets. He is doing the work of Jesus. We now are empowered. There, there is no Jesus person in the church that we are to idolize or to make uh, more of than who they are in Jesus. No, everybody has a part to play. Everybody has been gifted in some way to take the gospel forward. So this, this kind of combats our modern view of um, the church is about rock star pastors or ministers or worship leaders or things of that sort. No, it's actually saying it shouldn't be about them. Their role is actually to empower us all to then go, do more. Because if I were the only one going out, or our elders were the only ones doing things, that's only five or six of us, right? What makes more sense? Equipping, if an elder is equipping a group of eight or ten, well then all of a sudden we've got 80, or we've got 60 going out, and so forth. It multiplies. But if it's all about one person doing the work of ministry, uh, the ministry will be limited. And so that's the intention here. Now back to our last passage. Verse 3, he's ref uh, he states seven men. It's important to note that while the apostles call for men in this instance, we know that deacons can be women in 1 Timothy later on. So 1 Timothy, Paul opens it up to deacons, and deaconesses is the term um, in a later writing. Actually, it's probably an earlier writing, but a later instance, if that makes sense. But verse 5, he says, what they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parameenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, Stephen's introduced, and Luke constantly does this at the end of a passage, and as we conclude this passage pretty much here, Stephen usually, this is almost like, if, if we're, some of us might be familiar with like Marvel movies, uh, a character gets introduced in the middle, sometimes the end of a movie, that didn't really do much in that movie, but they are coming, their part is coming, and Stephen is about to be in the next movie, they're about to be in next week's scene, and pretty prominent, a pretty pivotal uh, figure in church history. 
So more to come for him. But again, notice they're laid before they come before the apostles. This is similar to that feeling of at the feet of the apostles. This is submitting them to the leaders that God had entrusted to their local community. Now, a couple things to notice before we conclude. This issue of discrimination, or any issue in general, it was brought to the apostles. They weren't chatting about it on Facebook Messenger or in their you know, coffee shops or whatever it may be. No, no, no. It was taken to the apostles, to the leaders. That's important. That's important for us. When we have issues or things of that sort, we ought to entrust it to those whom God has entrusted with the leadership and care, the shepherding of our body. Because our tongue, our gossip, our stories can get twisted. And so it's better to go to those who have been entrusted to potentially do something about it. But notice another thing. Notice the way the apostles responded. Notice that they listened and addressed the concerns with humility and sensitivity. How did they do this? It's interesting. It's something we probably wouldn't notice at face value. Uh, They appoint leaders that represent the minority that is experiencing discrimination. Each of the seven people here are Hellenistic Jewish people. New Testament theologian Craig Keener writes, this cannot be coincidence. Considering they were the minority, it would be almost impossible and improbable to completely appoint Hellenistic Jewish people for these positions. It says the community selected and the apostles blessed members of the offending minority group. As members of the minority, the new leaders could better understand the issues that caused the offense, as well as bring assurance that the minority's voice was heard and trusted. But, it's not just like, hey, they're a minority, put them up. He says, but these were not merely any members of the minority group, but those who could be trusted to put God's work first because the new leaders are, quote, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Members of both subcultures could trust them to pursue equity rather than factional interests. They, were not, they would hopefully not seek to continue divide, to divide, but rather to unite through mutual understanding. So what do we do about, let's say discrimination, but even maybe take a step back on just being wronged by people, or when people vocalize that they feel like they've been hurt or wronged? What seems like, and I think we get this from a few other places in the Gospels, but in general, a few principles for us. I think we are to stop. I think we're to stop when someone brings us something to, our feet, uh, to, to us. We stop and we listen to those who feel like they are experiencing affliction. And then, we are to empathize. Now, how did Jesus do this? How did he empathize with people who he couldn't immediately identify with? Did Jesus stay in heaven, or did he come down and experience our hell? He came down and experienced it, right? He walked in our midst. He he, he took on flesh. He became like us, that he could empathize with us, that he could identify with us, so that he could help bring us out of our hell. 
and back into the kingdom of heaven. That's how we're to empathize with people, right? And then lastly, I think we are to support and act. Uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 reads, Speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I'll say personally, I didn't uh, understand a lot about um, impoverished communities, and in particular, uh, the experience of uh, black Americans until we welcomed Gracie into our home. And in particular, it came to an apex when I found uh, an officer having, uh, pulling us over, or not pulling us over, stopping us from leaving a parking lot and uh, handcuffing my teenage daughter when we're telling her she's a teenager and we're her parents and being accused of something that we had a receipt for. I still have not met another person who has a kid who has experienced something like that. And that's not uncommon in where we just came from and anywhere. But it wasn't until that, until I was in those shoes, until my life was speeding up before my eyes and yet going so slow that my temperature was boiling, that I'm seeing all these different videos that have done something to our minds flash before my eyes as to what is going to happen to my kid who is in handcuffs up against a police car. And I am told I cannot move. I am to stay in my car and keep my hands on the wheel. That helped me empathize. It took that, and sometimes that's, that's difficult, but I share that experience with you um, just a brief experience summary of it, but I'll say it wasn't until moments like that that I was able to identify with what that minority group in our community was dealing with and that our daughter was a part of and coming out of and having to endure even as a kid. So how do we empathize? How are we to hear people's plights, their affliction, their difficulties. It may not be so black and white, and it doesn't have to get political. Let's keep it personal. I don't have to get into black or blue lives with Gracie's story. I can just be personal, that she's a person, and she experienced this, and I know that a lot of people don't. I listen. I get in her shoes. I empathize. It allows me to empathize with other people who potentially experience or have this uh, fear that is over their lives, this cloud that hangs over them. And then I support, and I act, and I ask how I can help. But it takes humility, it takes empathizing, it takes getting in people's shoes, it takes noticing where we may have different life experiences. And that's okay. But that's how Jesus did it for us, and we too are to do this. Now what's the result of this living? What's the result of obeying, even in community right here, and in caring for those who are the least of these in your community, and even in our church community? Luke says it for us at the end, in that summary statement in verse 7. It says, the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient in the faith. Man, even the opposition in their midst, big, this is not a little thing here going on that a, a portion of your church community is saying, hey, you are discriminating against us. You are not giving those people in need who are a different people group, you are not treating them the same as this majority people over here. That's a big accusation, and that could really tear things apart. It's arguably something that tears apart cities and countries, right? It's something that can be pretty daunting and scary and offensive. But they continue to persist. The reality of the resurrection is unfolding in them, is manifesting in and through them. They are uh, people of the resurrection, keeping the main thing the main thing. And they are seeking to love people the way that Jesus loved them. Now, what's our motivation as we conclude to live lives this way? I keep trying to get back to it. It's Jesus, right? For Jesus, sometimes his obedience to the Father looked like opposition while in his community, in his culture, and in his caring for the overlooked and misunderstood. Right? He he heals people on the Sabbath, gets called out for how he's caring for people, right? There's many instances of that. Sometimes it looked like opposition in his different contexts even in the church community or the, the temple community. Other times, his obedience looked like obeying or not putting up resistance while in his community, in his culture, and in his caring of those in need. If you recall, according to Matthew's gospel, towards the end of his life, when Jesus was arrested in chapter 26, he obeys the Father by obeying or submitting to the ways of those in power over him. Matthew tells us that one of Jesus' disciples believed that in that moment, it was time to resist, to fight back, to stand up. This was where we drew the line. And what does he do? He cuts off someone's ear. In opposition, they resorted to violence and cut someone's ear off. But Jesus tells them, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Imagine if Jesus would have taken a posture of opposition in that instance. Imagine if he wouldn't have accepted the fate right there. Instead of accepting their charges, God could have sent legions of angels to protect Jesus. But what would that mean for the world today? What would that mean for you and me? Jesus wouldn't have been tried and convicted. Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. Jesus wouldn't have been resurrected from the grave. The Holy Spirit wouldn't have come. Satan's sin and death would still have a grip on us who are in Christ. We wouldn't be here today. Now, in his lack of resistance or opposition to those that were imposing on his liberty or his righteousness in the eyes of the community, Jesus was able to safely get across the bridge. On the other side is where he was truly needed, right? There he could face our ultimate opposition. In perfect obedience, Jesus faced this opposition 
And in his obedience, Jesus was able to oppose that which stood against God's character and kingdom. So now we who are in Jesus don't have to get caught up in these momentary culture or even church wars or political wars, whatever it may be, whatever infighting down on the ground or up in the sky that we are finding ourselves getting caught up in. By seeking to win these battles, we may have already lost. This is evidenced by churches all over America that are dying, like I said. We often point outwards, trying to find someone or something in the cultures or in the community or the schools to blame, but Jesus called us to look inwards. Jesus called us to examine ourselves before others. Perhaps the church would be wise to obey his call. We don't need to win the culture wars. Jesus already won the ultimate war on the kingdom. Through his resurrection, Jesus defeated the enemy, sin and death itself. This is why we have the book of Acts. And this is why we are here. Because Jesus and his people sought to continue to fight for the main thing. Oppose when, when needed to, when opposition was needed. But then obey when obeying was needed. And sometimes it's a mix, right? But anyways, well, that's our passage here. Next week we jump into the next chunk where we see um, Stephen. We meet Stephen a little bit more, and we're going to see Acts 1-8 starts to unfold a little more. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local, gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.